I want to introduce the uh, nine-minute video we're going to watch in a moment or two. Uh, Some of you saw it Wednesday night. You know, the Bible says that there's nothing that happens on earth that God has not forewarned his people by his prophets. And Bible says we're not as a thief uh, that we should be overtaken in the dark. We walk in the light. Um, you know, I'm greatly, greatly encouraged. I don't know when I've been this encouraged. Let me tell you why. I believe that now and in the days to come, the true church, the true body of Christ is going to rise and uh, become a mighty army for the Lord. I'm talking about the body of Christ, the true church. You know, the true church is made up of believers in whom Christ lives. They're scattered all across this nation, towns, hamlets, cities, from every denomination that's biblical, from every walk of life. And I believe that the church is being awakened even now with what we're facing as a nation concerning same-sex marriage, with what we're facing as a nation concerning religious freedom. It's like people are saying, you know, it's now or never. So I'm encouraged that we're going to see the church in America as we've never seen it before, now and in the days to come. I'm telling you, things are going to change. They're going to change, y'all. And they're going to change for the better for the body of Christ. They're going to. Now, there will be religious denominations that fall away. There will be casual religious people that will fall away. There will be those who will give in to the pressure of humanism, secularism, the liberal media. But you know, the Bible says they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have stayed with us. So there's going to be a separation from the religious and the saved. A separation from those who have an intellectual assent to a bunch of facts than those who have authentic faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A separation will come. And the true church will rise. I love what the choir used to sing, but I, I, I would be discouraged if they sing it. They would sing, let the church rise. I said, well, it's about time, and I wish it would. But I tell you what, I believe the church is going to rise. Now, some of you don't believe it, but I believe it. And I believe God is going to do something in his people that's going to amaze us all. And we'll see an example of it in Acts chapter 4. Jonathan Kahn wrote The Harbinger after 9-11. He's written other books. But he did a nine-minute video, a nine-minute message. Let me tell you what it was. It was in the same hall in Washington, D.C., 
where George Washington stood the day before his inauguration as the first president of the United States, he stood in the same place that George Washington stood. And he quoted what George Washington said. This nation, this republic will not stand unless it continues to be built upon the basic principles and foundation of the word of God. And then he brings one of the most stirring calls for us to repent and to seek the face of God. He's a Messianic Jew, but um, no video has moved me to realize the crisis of the hour and how that like on Mount Carmel, Elijah said, how long will you be drawn between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. And if Baal is God, then follow him. And so we're confronted with that choice. And we're praying for God to give us victory. But I want you to listen to this and, and get the context and just ask God to speak to your spirit. And then I want to just come up and just continue right on with the message that we have today. So we're going to watch that video. It's nine minutes long. I promise you, listen with your heart. Listen with your heart. It is April 29th, 2015. 226 years ago this day, George Washington readied himself for the first ever presidential inauguration to take place the following day, the day that America as we know it came into existence with the president's hand resting on the word of God. That day would conclude with America's first government gathering in prayer to dedicate the nation's future to God. A century and a half earlier, another seminal event took place on the same day, on April 29, 1607. The voyagers on the Susan Constant, the Discovery, and the Godspeed gathered together in prayer at Cape Henry to set a wooden cross in the sands of Virginia Beach and to dedicate the new civilization to the will and the purposes of God. America's biblical foundation would be affirmed and reaffirmed over and over again by its forefathers, from the pilgrims of the Mayflower to the Puritans of Massachusetts Bay to the leaders of the first American colonies who declared publicly and in writing that the new commonwealth had come into existence solely for the glory and purposes of God. No historian can rewrite that. No president can expunge that. And if a thousand angels swore in a thousand Bibles that this was not the case, it would in no way alter the fact that this American civilization was conceived, established, dedicated, and founded on a biblical cornerstone. America was brought into existence for the will and the purpose of God. On this night, over 200 years ago, George Washington held in his hand the first ever presidential address. In that address was a prophetic warning. It was this, the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself hath ordained. In other words, if America should ever turn away from God and his ways, if it should ever disregard his eternal rules of order and right, then his blessings, the smiles of heaven, would be removed from the land. It was an ancient warning. It had been given in Hebrew words by the prophets to the kingdom of Israel. But Israel turned away from God and disregarded his eternal rules of order and right. They drove God out of their government, out of their public squares, out of their culture, out of the lives of their children. They worshiped idols and served other gods. 
they celebrated immorality and they persecuted righteousness. They lifted up their children on the altars of foreign gods and the blessings of God were removed from the land and replaced with judgment. It is two and a half thousand years later and America has made the same mistake. We too have turned away from God. We too have driven him out of the government, out of our public square, out of our culture, out of the lives of our children. We too have profaned the sacred and sanctified the profane. And we too have killed our most innocent, over 55 million of our unborn children, and our collective hands are covered with blood. What we were warned never to do, we now have done. And now we gather in the city named after the one who gave us the prophetic warning. And yesterday in this city, in the building that sits across from this hill, the justices of the Supreme Court took up their places on the bench to decide whether America should strike down the biblical and historic definition of marriage. The very fact that, that an event should take place as such is a sign in itself that um, this is the America of Washington's warning. It's here. And this day of which he warned is now. We have become a civilization in spiritual schizophrenia, a nation at war against its own foundation. The Supreme Court opens its sessions with the words, God save the United States and this honorable court. But if then, if this honorable court should overrule the word of God and strike down the eternal rules of order and right that heaven itself hath ordained, how then will God save it? Supreme Court justices, can you judge the ways of God? Can you with man-made verdicts overrule the eternal laws of God? There is another court and there is another judge and before him all men and all judges will give account. If a nation's high court should pass judgment on the Almighty, should you then be surprised that the Almighty should pass judgment on the court and that nation? In the book of Jeremiah, it's written, Has a nation ever exchanged its gods? Yet my people have exchanged their glory for that which cannot help them. Let us not pretend as to what we are now doing. We are doing that which Israel did on the altars of Baal. We are exchanging our God for idols, our light for darkness, and our glory for that which cannot save us. Are we ready to risk that which comes on the other side of that exchange, the day when the blessings of heaven are removed from the land. We began with a word from the president of our first nations are the day that he began as president. I now speak a word to the president of our nation's most recent days. Each time I've spoken here, I've asked a question. I'll now answer it. Mr. President, with all respect that is due, what happens if one assumes the presidency by placing his left hand on the word of God and then with his right hand enacts laws that war against the very same word of God on which he laid his hand. Such an act invokes the judgment of the Almighty. To swear an oath on the word of God on which it's written, defend the weak and do not murder, and then to not defend the weak, to not protect the unborn, but instead to advance their murder is to invoke the judgment of the Almighty. To swear an oath on the word of God in which it's written, do not cause your brother to stumble, and then to seek to force those who uphold the word of God to transgress the word of God by partaking in the killing of the unborn and the celebration of sin is to invoke the judgment of the Almighty. And to swear an oath on the word of God in which it's written, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And then to take part in the leading of a nation away from the eternal rules of order and right that heaven itself hath ordained and against the very word of God on which you laid your hand is to invoke the judgment of the Almighty. When the leaders of ancient Israel turned away from God, when they abolished his precepts and broke his covenant, they did so in the shadow of Moses, whose voice cried out to them in warning. Mr. President, when you address the nation from this house, look up, look up above the senators and the representatives, above the Supreme Court justices and above the invited guest, and you'll see a face, the only full visage in that wall. Looking back at you, it is the face of Moses. And if that face could speak, it would say this, 
No man can overrule the laws of God. No order can annul the order of God. And no judgment of man can stand against the judgments of God. Invoke not his judgment, but choose life. Lead in the way of repentance. Invoke the grace of God that he might have mercy on this land. We've come to a most critical moment. As Elijah stood on top of Mount Carmel and cried out, to Israel in his hour of decision in between two altars and two gods, his voice now cries out to America and says, choose you this day whom you will serve. 70 years ago, the chaplain of the United States Senate cried out with the same voice and said to this nation, if the Lord be God, then follow him. But if Baal, then follow him and go to hell. Tonight, America stands at the crossroads. And as Elijah came to the summit of Mount Carmel to make a declaration, we've come this night to Capitol Hill to declare that our God is not Baal, our God is not Moloch, our God is not government, our God is not money, our God is not power, not pleasure, our God is not political correctness, or any other man-made thing. We've come to this hill to declare that there is only one God, and he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of Israel and of all nations. He alone is the rock upon which this nation has come into existence. And from this high place, we make this declaration. We will not bow down our knees to Baal. We will not bow down our knees to political correctness. We will not bow down our knees to a morality that as, is as shifting as sand in the wind. We will not bow down our knees to the laws and precepts of rebellion or the sacred cows of moral apostasy. We will not bow down our knees to the idols of man. We will not bow down to Baal. We will bow down our knees only to the Lord our God, come what may, and we will have no other gods before him. For some trust in chariots, some trust in princes, some trust in Supreme Courts, some trust in White Houses, some trust in governments, some trust in Wall Street, some trust in powers, and some trust in idols. But we will trust in the name of the Lord our God, in the name above all names, above all kings, above all powers, we will trust in the only name given by which we can be saved. We will trust in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the judge of all judges, the light of the world, the glory of Israel, the foundation stone upon which this nation came into existence, and the only answer, the only chance, and the only hope that America has, that it might once again shine with the light of the fire of the presence of the glory of the living God, and not go to hell. So help us God. Thank you. Amen. In these days, I do believe that the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ will answer the call of God. Hey, listen. God said his people would answer his call. God said that he was going to come back for a church that was a bride adorned for her husband. And so I am fully expecting, not only now, but in the days to come, for the church of Jesus Christ to be like the early church. And if you want to get a picture of the early church, turn with me over to the third chapter of the book of Acts. And I'm going to run through this real quick, and then I want to challenge you to a closer walk with God than you've ever had in your life. It's one thing to know the problem, but each individual in this room, each individual in this room has to answer God's call to live a life of obedience, to live a life that honors Christ, that lives a life that stands on the word of God, 
and that live a life that would be light and salt to a desperate nation. You say, I'm just one person. That's right. And it's one person plus one other person in the body of Christ, wherever they are, that God can use to change the world. There were only a few disciples. They were opposed on every hand. But on one time, occasion, they came into a city, and this is what the people said. Those people who have turned the world upside down have come here also. If a few disciples, having been with Jesus, can be used by God to have the people say they're going to turn the world upside down, certainly the church of Jesus Christ, the true church in America, can rise up like a mighty army and a spiritual power to make a difference. In Acts chapter 3, verse 11, we see Peter and John going into the temple, and there's a lame man sitting at the gate. Hey, by the way, he'd been sitting at that gate for many years. Jesus had passed by that lame man and had not healed him. Others of the disciples had passed by, but he was left there for this moment for God to act in his church in history. And Peter and John told him in Acts chapter 3, verse 11, uh, that, uh, that, that they raised him up in the name of Jesus. And so they went into Solomon's porch, and this, guy, this uh, man that they had healed followed him. And when they got there, uh, Peter be, be, began to, in verse 11, let, let's just read verse 11 through verse 16, and, and this will give you the context of what happened. In Acts 11, Acts 3, verses 11 through 16, now the lame man who was healed, held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the, in, in the porch called Solomon's. So when Peter saw it, now he declares the truth of God, which we, the true church will do in these days. When Peter saw it, he responded, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so intently at us? Now listen to what Peter said. It had nothing to do with us. It was God. Why do you look at, so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hey, he was clear. There's one God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus. Jesus was glorified in this man's healing. Whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, he was determined to let him go. But you denied the holy and just one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. and then killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. Now listen to this. And through his name and his name through faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him perfect soundness. So Peter said, look, there was a great throng and they were amazed. They'd watched this man. They'd gone into the temple. They'd seen him sitting there, lame. And they'd passed him by. Now all of a sudden he's there embracing Peter and John. And they're saying, what happened? And Peter said, it wasn't us, it was God. It was the faith in Jesus that raised this man up. Okay. Well, of course, this stirred up the scribes and Pharisees and the other rulers. And they became enraged because Jesus was being exalted and people were hearing the truth. So we go over to Acts chapter 4. And we see that the church is uh, uh, immediately, they're challenged. Look in Acts chapter 4, verse 5, and look what happened. And it says, and, and it came to pass on the next day that the rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, 
John, Alexander, and as many as were the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And they set Peter and John in their midst and asked, By what power or what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, Rulers of people, elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well. And boy, listen, see, you've got to speak the truth. You've got to speak it boldly. He said, if we did judge this day was done to this helpless man, verse 10, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man has been made whole. And this is the stone which the builders rejected and it's become the chief cornerstone. And then in verse 12, boy, he, he, he just says, I'm not going to be politically correct. Listen to what he says. There's no, there's, neither is there salvation in any other. For there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. All right, we see the church standing. We see the church working and living in miraculous power. We see them confronted by the rulers and the scribes. We, we see them, the church saying, listen, this was all done by Jesus, and he is the only way to be saved. And then they have a meeting and say, well, how are we going to stop these people? How are we going to shut them up? How are we going to keep them from, from proclaiming and standing in the marketplace and proclaiming Jesus? How are we going to stop them? So in chapter 4, verse 17, look what it says. But so that it spreads no further, the gospel of Christ, the power of Jesus to save and to heal. But so it spreads no further among the people. Let us severely threaten them. I seem like I hear that happening today. You know, if the Christians don't watch themselves, well, they don't get in trouble, you know. I mean, if they, if they call sin, sin, and if they stand for the, God's word, and if they vocally proclaim that God let God be true and every man a liar, you know, they could get in trouble. Have you kind of felt threatened by the liberal media and threatened by the people who say, well, you know, boy, it's going it's to be hard on, 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 on the church. Let me just say one thing. Let me just tell you what it says. So they called them, verse 18, and commanded them not to speak at all in the name of Jesus. I mean, they just said, all right, now that's enough of this. You're causing a, a riot, an uprising. You got this man healed, and now you're telling people Jesus is alive. And they said, they commanded them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Now, listen to this answer. This is our answer to the secular society we live in who says to the church, be silent, keep your mouth shut, keep your religion inside the church doors. This is what we're going to say to them. It says, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. They said, come on. You ain't got to be a rocket scientist to fill out that we're going to listen to God and we're not going to listen to you. Now, if you don't know that, you've really missed the whole point. He says, whether it's right to hearken to God or to you, you be the judge. But then look at verse 20. This is why the church cannot be silent. This is why Christians have to be filled with the Holy Spirit, live in spiritual power, live holy lives, because we, this is who we are. It says in verse 20, 
we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. How can we be silent when we know Jehovah God? How can we be silent when we know Jesus Christ? How can we be silent to, that, to know that when you break the word of God and deny the counsels of God, that the judgment God falls on individuals and on nations? How can we be silent when God said, warn the wicked to turn from their wicked ways? And if you do not warn the wicked to turn from their wicked ways, their blood will be on your hands. How can we be silent? We can't be. He said here, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, you know, that they're just going to threaten Christians in the days to come. Okay, so let's take this scenario. The Supreme Court votes five to four that there's no constitutional right for sex same marriage or to, for a state to honor it. So they're saying is, it's not a constitutional right. It is the decision of each state. So if they make that decision, then that means that the battle will be fought. It won't be over. It's just going to get intense. It'll be fought in the states. It'll be fought in Alabama. It'll be fought in Georgia. It'll be fought in all, this, all the states. And the state will decide whether or not they will permit sex same marriage. So uh, if we win, it's, you know, it's going to be good, but it's still going to be a tremendous battle. And it says here, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them. Now, here, here's the thing. Now, how did the church act when that happened? Now, this is what I wanted you to see. After they were threatened, after they were said, don't you teach or speak in the name of Jesus, be silent, what did they do? Did they say, well, we don't want to, be, we don't want to have a lawsuit, baloney, Well, we don't want to be we want to, we want to be politically correct. Uh-uh, that's not good language. No, we don't want to be called hate mongers or bigots. That's not it. No, we know who we are. We are children of the living God. Jesus Christ lives in us, and we walk in truth and we walk in love. And anything else they say about us is an absolute lie. We walk in truth and we walk in love. And anybody that names the name of Jesus that walks in hatred and, 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 and puts down people in hate, that's not God and that's not the army of God. Amen? The army of God walks in truth and in love and therefore will not be silent. How can we but speak the things which we have seen and heard? So what did they do? Did they say, oh my goodness, we got trouble. The government's after us. Oh me. What did they do? Let me tell you what they did. Exactly what we need to do. You go on in chapter 4, and it, it tells exactly what they did. All right, look in uh, verse 23. Don't miss this. And being let go, they went to their own companions. They went to the rest of the church. They went to the rest of the church. And reported all that the chief priest and elders had said to them. Hey, you know what they did? They commanded us not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And they, they severely threatened us and told us to keep our mouths shut. So what did they do? They didn't wring their hands and say, oh my goodness, what in the world are we going to do? They started praying. Look at verse 24. So when they heard that, the church starts praying, y'all. When they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. 
And guess what they did? They said, God, you're still God, and you're on the throne, and you're in control. Listen to what they said. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you're God which made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. By the mouth of your servant David said, Why did the heathen nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his Christ. They said, Lord, we we know what happened and we know what they did. But we know, God, you had the final word. You've had the final word. You raised Jesus from the dead, and he is alive, and we are his people. And, and, we, uh, and it says, and uh, they asked God to give them boldness. Look at verse 20. Look on their threats. Grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. So what we're saying, Lord, as the body of Christ, give us boldness that we might declare the truth. In love. Give us boldness, Lord. That's what we're praying, that we might declare the truth in love. And then it says, also, Lord, manifest your power. Let them know that the same God who sent fire on Mount Carmel and consumed the sacrifice is the same God who can send fire in this day in which we live. You're God of all power and of all might. And it says, by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through your name of your holy servant, Jesus. They said, God, give us boldness and give us power. Let me tell you what I think is going to happen. I believe in the next now and in the days to come, the true church of Jesus Christ is going to be filled with boldness and with power. And so be it, almighty God. We're not going to be timid. We're not going to be intimidated. We're going to be full of boldness and power. In these days, that's going to be the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I love verse 31, and this is my subject for today. (laughs) And when they had prayed, the place which they were shaped, the place where they were assembled was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And then the next verse says, And it says, and the multitude of those who believed, the church came together as one. The multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that all of the things he possessed was his own, but they all had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the dead, and great grace was upon them all. All right, now listen. It's when the church is under pressure. It's when the church is under stress. It's when the church is facing persecution that it brings the church together. And everybody has each other's back. You understand? You know, things that used to be important aren't important anymore. We need, we've got the piano on the wrong side of the a platform. Who cares when you, you, you're fighting for your life? Well, I, I think the service went too long. Well, who cares? I mean, we're fighting for the battle of our nation, the soul of our nation. Who cares about that? Such trivial things have diverted us and our nation has been going to hell while the church has been asleep and it's time for the church to say no more. And together, together. Let me say one thing. We stand together. I guarantee we got each other's back. But most of all, God has our back. And a united church is a powerful church. 
churches have bickered and fought and quarreled and over things that were totally unimportant because they were full of lost people and all upset about things that didn't matter. That day is over, my friend. It is time for the true church of Jesus Christ to rise and to be united and full of the Holy Spirit of God and to stand like we've never stood before. And there are three things that I'm challenging you today. This is my heart for each one of you. I have great hope that the revival we prayed for and the presence of God that we long for is going to come to the church and it's going to come in the midst of crisis. But that's all right. The early church lived in a crisis and they had a great movement of God. It was right in the days before the Civil War that a revival swept across America in 1855 or so and millions came into the kingdom of God. It was in a time of distress and peril that this occurred. There are three things that happened. First of all, when they prayed, they experienced the presence of God. Now, I want to challenge you. I want you to seek God like you've never sought him before. I know you're here because you believe in him. I know you're here because you long to see God's work done. But let me tell you something. Casual Christianity is out the window, folks. It's out the window. Lukewarm religion, is, 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 it ain't going to hack it. Now, I want to challenge you to seek the presence of God. The place was shaken. Oh, listen, it is the presence of God. Now, God li- Jesus lives in us. He lives in us. He said he did. And through Paul, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but what? Christ lives where? In me. So, we have the presence of Christ in our life. So, we ask God to make us aware of his presence. Make us aware of his presence. And let us live with the conscious awareness that Christ lives in me, and I am seeking the presence of God. I'm seeking his presence. Did you know? Now, I want to show you a verse, and I want you to underline it. And I want you to go home, and I want you to memorize it. Do you know Jesus has promised to manifest himself to those that obey him. John 14, 21. Now listen to what he promised. He promised that if we the church would walk in obedience, that he would manifest himself to us. It says, he who has my commandment and keeps them, it is he who loves me. You know, Jesus always made it so clear. Don't tell me you love me. Show me you love me by obeying me. It's one thing for you to say you love me, but if you love me and don't obey me, that, that's, that's, that's inconsistent. He says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Now get this. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, get this, and manifest myself to him. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. I love you unconditionally, but that obedience produces my blessings. And he said, I'm going to manifest myself to you. And when you are walking with me, when people are behind you or against you, doesn't matter. He said, if you're walking, if you love me 
and you're walking with me, I will manifest myself to you. And it's the presence of God that gives us courage. It's the presence of Jesus that gives us power. So let me ask you, will you? Will you? I'm telling you, it's personal. Will you, with all your heart, set your face to seek the Lord Jesus Christ? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. I'm asking you, he said in the word, you shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Listen, this is the time for you to seek the Lord with all your heart. And the question is, in the day when God wants to use you, when the day that God wants to use you, will that become the priority in your life? To seek the Lord. To ex- ask God to let you experience his presence. Seek the presence of Christ. Psalm 1611 says, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand is pleasure forevermore. This is the day when the true church is going to say, Lord, we're seeking you, Jesus. We're seeking you. We need your presence. Hey, by the way, have you ever wondered how the disciples could do what they did? In the 16th chapter of Acts, they had been preaching in this town And there was a young woman that was demon-possessed that they were using to tell people's fortunes. And and, and Peter, Paul finally got fed up with it and just told the demon to leave her in the name of Jesus. And And the demon left. And the people who were using her to make a profit, they got all upset with them and drug them into the courtyard and, and, and all the people got enraged and they tore the clothes off of Paul and them and they beat them with stripes uh, on their back. Paul and Silas just beat them with stripes on their back and put them in prison. And don't you imagine they said, oh my goodness, look what happened. We got beat up and we got stripes on our back and all that. We were just trying to please God and we just told the devil to get out of that girl. You think they did that? You think they had a case of self-pity? Oh no. They were living in the presence of Jesus. Look look in Acts 16, 25. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. They were singing in jail. You know why? Because Jesus was in jail with them. Listen, what is the word of God? The place where they were assembled was shaken. You need to seek presence of God. I don't care if you're 15 or 50 or 80. You need with all your heart to hunger and thirst for him and to go after God with your whole heart. And I'm telling you, if you ever intend to do it, now is the time to do it. Here's the second thing. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. They experienced God's presence. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Not just the preacher. Not just the apostles. Oh, no. All of them there in that room. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen. The Bible makes it clear that when you got saved, God's gift to you was the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus has told his disciples, I'm going away, but I'm going to come back. And I'm going to live in each one of you. I'm going to live in with you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so in Acts 1.8, Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me. And so they waited in the upper room until the day of Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And, and let, me read, let me read that. The day of Pentecost came. They were all with one accord in one place. And the Holy Spirit came and filled each one of them like he had promised that he would. Acts 2, 1 through 4. And the day of Pentecost was fully come. They were all with one accord in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and, the, and it came upon each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, all, A-L-L, that means everybody, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and to begin to speak with other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now listen, the, the, a New Testament church and the church that Jesus is going to raise up in this day, the true church is going to rise to the top, it's going to be a church where the people are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. You cannot fight the battles that we're going to fight with the arm of the flesh. It's time for, to forget about the programs, the gimmicks, the plans, and all that stuff that we've used to try to make the church be something special. It's time for God's people to get full of the Holy Spirit of God and to be filled with the power of God and to move and live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And nothing can stand before the Holy Spirit of God. Nothing. How do these people in the countries where they're constantly under persecution, how do they do it? They are filled with the Spirit of God. They have died to themselves and allowed Jesus to be Lord of their life, and they are living in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you, before the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were a bunch of cowards. They were afraid. Peter denied Jesus three times and cursed him. But then when Pentecost came and Jesus came to live in them by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same people that were cowards and afraid became bold as a lion and they, were, they, 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 they charged hell. And, and I'm telling you, they, they moved, the early church moved in the power of the Holy Spirit. It says here in the Acts of the Apostles, no, it ought to be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what it was. Now let me tell you this. When you got saved, you got all of the Holy Spirit. But the question is, does he have all of you? You see, when you were saved, you were born of the Spirit. When you were saved, you received the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you were saved, you were baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ and made to drink of the Holy Spirit. When you were saved, the Holy Spirit sealed you into Jesus and when you were saved, the Holy Spirit became God's guarantee that what God had started in you, God would finish. So, man, listen, we are not living in the flesh, y'all. If you're a child of God, we, we just need to be sure that we're walking in the Spirit. Galatians five sixteen: walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I love Zechariah chapter 4. I think it's verse 6. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, it says, it is not by might, 
It is not by power. It is by my saith. Spirit saith the Lord. Hey, you know what makes me so hopeful? God's children have the Holy Spirit living in them. And he is powerful. He is powerful. And he can speak through you with authority. He can give you spiritual gifts to to which to do the things that God wants you to do. And we go forth to battle, not in this armor of Saul. We go forth to battle, not in the, in our intellect, in our, our smartness. We, we go forth to battle in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. A New Testament church is not a New Testament church unless it operates in the power of the Holy Spirit. You say, Brother Fred, well, I want to be filled with the Spirit. I want to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. You've got to die to yourself. Well, first of all, you can't have sin in your life. Now, listen, if every one of us would get all the sin out of our life, I don't know. I mean, I'm talking about would get rid of all bitterness, all criticism, all gossip, all sins of the tongue that no man can tame. If we just crucify the flesh with its affections and lust, and we'd cast off the works of darkness, and we would walk before God as far as we knew with clean hands and a pure heart. As far as we know, our sins are confessed. As far as we know, they're under the blood of Jesus. We're walking before God with clean hands and a pure heart. Then we say, God, I don't want to be controlled by myself. I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. And we die to ourselves. We ask God to bring the power of the cross against our self-life. And then we say to Jesus, I don't belong to myself. I belong to you. You are Lord, and you need to be Lord. I I choose for you to be Lord of my life. Hey, it's nothing new. I heard it years ago, and it hadn't changed. You get empty of sin. You get empty of yourself. And you crown Jesus as the Lord of your life. And you ask the Holy Spirit of God to fill you and possess you. And you start living in the Holy Spirit's power. And I'm telling you, you'll, be, you'll have boldness. You'll see the power of God like you've never seen it before. Empty of sin, dying to self, Jesus as Lord and filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Man, that's a church that God's going to raise up in these days to stand and they will stand. You say, Brother Fred, it's personal, isn't it? Yeah. You've got to seek the presence of God. Yeah, it's personal. I've got to be sure I'm empty of sin and self. And I've got to be sure Jesus is on the throne of my heart. And I've got to be sure I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. Nobody else can do that for me. But I believe there's so many of you listening to my voice now. You pray, Brother Fred, I'm not satisfied with my spiritual power. The Bible says in in 1 Corinthians 4.20, I believe it is, the kingdom of God is not in word but in power. 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God is not in word but in power. Ephesians 5.18 says, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is riot, but be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's the last thing. We've got to seek the presence of God, our lives, individually and as a church. We've got to get to the place where we're walking and we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, we've got to proclaim the Word of God 
with boldness. Listen to what it says. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, I want to give you four examples of how we have to speak the word of God with boldness. And I'm gonna, we're going to pray. All right, here's the first thing. What have we got to say? Truth and love. The church walks, walks in truth and love. Can't, truth is not going to be effective without love. Love is have, not effective without truth. All right, so we speak the word of God with boldness. All right, the, the, the people will say, well, to you, now listen, um, I want to ask you a question. Why, why, why can't you be tolerant? Why can't you be tolerant? Why can't you be nice? Well, I thought I am nice. I thought I was tolerant. Well, why do you always have to be stirring things up? Well, I thought, I'm not trying to stir things up. Well let, well, let me just, why can't you just say, okay, if t- a man wants to marry a man and a woman wants to marry a woman, well, what's a, what, don't, don't get all bent out of shape out about that. Why, 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 are you, why are you so strong against that? Can I tell you why? Because it's a sin against God. It's a sin against God. Hey, l- listen to what Jesus said in John 19, verse Matthew, excuse me, Matthew 19, verse 5. See, all we're saying is, all we're going to do is stand on the Word of God. We're not going to stand anywhere else. We're going to stand on the Word of God, and we're going to proclaim what it says. So I go back to verse 4. Now listen, folks, this is Jesus, okay? They say, well, Jesus never spoke against homosexuality. Well, all he did was talk against sexual sin all the time. He did. He spoke against all that stuff. But he he did it right here when he said, in verse 4, he answered and said, have you read... Have you not read? Don't you know what the Bible says? Jesus said. At the beginning, he made them male and female. What part of that don't we understand? In the beginning, he made them what? Male and female. All right. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. They shall no longer be two but one Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. So we say, listen, we love lost people. We love homosexuals. We love lesbians. We want them to be saved under God. We, we don't, they're already, just like lost people, we're already under the con- condemnation lost people are. So not, we're not condemning them. We're just simply saying that homosexuality and lesbianism is a sin and you need to repent and turn, turn to God. And it marriages between a man and a woman. And we'll stand on that and we'll never change. We'll stand on it until we take our last breath and go to be with Jesus. Because that is the truth. And we say, we, it's thus saith the Lord. It's not our opinion. It's the word of God. And here's the second thing. So we're going to proclaim boldly the word of God. Well, so here's the second thing. Well, they'll say... Um, um, why do you believe, and I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with what, what, what I call the sexual revolution, because it's more than same-sex marriage. It is a secular re- revolution that start, starts with the Humanist Manifesto when it says no situation is wrong 
that the, no, no, nothing is wrong. The situation determines it's wrong. And in the Humanist Manifesto, it says sex between two consenting adults is right, whether they're married or not. And so we answer that by saying, well, why, why, why are you so hard about sex outside of marriage? Why, I mean, why, are you a Puritan or something? Or what's, what's your problem? Well, I ain't got a problem. I just got the Word of God, okay? 1 Corinthians 6.18. I mean, it's not hard to understand. Paul said it as plainly as he could. Listen at this. This is the word of God. This is why we, it's wrong for people to live in adultery. This is why for, to have sex outside of marriage where there's no commitment and no bond. It says in 1 Corinthians six eighteen, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Now, so we say, man, the Bible says, flee sexual immorality. You, you, you're taking sin into your own body, and it affects you like no other sin. Well, they say, okay, so you're going to take a stand on marriage because Jesus said it was between a man and a woman, and you're going to take a, 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 a stand for sexual purity because that's what Jesus, uh, that's what the Word of God said, that sex is between a man and a woman and the bonds of marriage and a commitment. And then, uh, well, let me ask you this question. And we need to say this because most people you're going to confront, they may, be, they may be a member of the denomination upon denomination. But we're going to say, you know, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the only way that a person can be saved. Well, what about a good Buddhist? I hadn't met any. What about a good Muslim? What about a good, good, good? No, no, no. It ain't got nothing to do with goodness. The Bible says all of our righteousness is filthy rags. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says the soul that sins, it will die. And then Jesus said, but let me tell you, we sang about it all morning. We sang about the cross all morning. That's God's answer to man's greatest problem of sin. And so why do we believe that Jesus is the only way? He's the only one that died for your sin. He was the only one that shed his blood for your sin. He was the only one that took your place. Muhammad didn't die on the cross for anybody. Buddha didn't die on the cross for anybody. Listen, I'm telling you, there's one atonement, one way to be right with God, and that's through the blood of Jesus Christ and the cross of Jesus Christ. And in light of that, we say, I'm telling you, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. That offends a lot of people, but I'd rather offend them now than them go to hell. See, they proclaim the word of God with boldness. Now, if you believe this book, and we do, I hope you do, I believe every word of it. I even believe the maps. I believe every word of it. You know why? Because it stood the test of time. Every prophecy, every prophecy concerning the first coming of Jesus was fulfilled in detail. What God promised, God did. 
And now we see the world exactly where God said it would be at this time in history. And I'll tell you, philosophies have come and gone and opinions have come and gone. But I'm telling you, this word is more real, it's more true than it has ever been because we see it happening right before our eyes. And I'll tell you, we're going to live believing this word. We'll die believing this word. And we will stand on this word. And we will not compromise, though the gates of hell come against us. We won't do it. Because this is our authority. And it's a book of love that Jesus loves people. He died for them. We love people. You say, well, Brother Fred, it's, listen, I'm going to tell you, you ain't got a choice. Jesus said, love your enemies. Thank you, Lord. Love your enemies. Bless those that curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. You'll never win them with condemnation and hate. You'll ever, only way you'll win them is by loving them and pointing them to Jesus. Point them to Jesus. And with God, all things are possible. People can be saved. And with boldness, they experienced the presence of God. They were filled with the power of God. And they proclaimed the word of God. That's a New Testament church in the face of opposition and threats. Let's pray together.